Today's sermon text is Daniel 1. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 737. Hear the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Amongst these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. Will you pray with me? 
Good Father, we come to you now in our time of great need. We need your words. All of us have come in here with wounds from the weak, some self-made and some are a result of living in a very toxic culture. Feeling the weight of what it means to be strangers and exiles in this world. We need your word to speak to us today. So do so now. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning to walk through the first chapter of Daniel. I got a question for you to start off. What happens when your world is turned upside down? Uh, the, the diagnosis, the loss of a job, uh, a crisis of faith, tragedy befalls you. It could be a season of marital strife or a season of depression. What happens? How are we to respond? I know that um, my world got turned upside down in the middle of September. Many of you guys uh, know that and appreciate your prayers and encouragement uh, to me and my family along the way since then. But, you know, I kind of look for what can I trust? What can I rely on when my world's been turned upside down? And we learn in the book of Daniel that this place of exile, this place of darkness, this place called Babylon, is actually not as dark as you might think. When we look at the book of Daniel, we're to actually look at it through the, through the lens of Scripture. And one of the passages of Scripture that we can look at is Jeremiah 24, where Jeremiah sees this vision. And if he hadn't seen this vision, he wouldn't be able to believe it. But God gave him this vision of these two uh, baskets of figs. And there was a good basket of figs. And then there was a bad basket of figs. And Jeremiah... Uh, was told, the Lord interpreted this vision to him and said, the good basket of figs, they're going to be in Babylon. That's actually where my blessing is going to be. It's going to actually be into the darkness of Babylon. The bad figs, they're going to be in Judah. The ones who have rejected my word, those are the bad figs. So in Daniel, I hope that over the next, uh, well, who knows how long this can take us since uh, uh, we're, we're taking a break from Ryan's uh, preaching through the Gospel of Luke. And so when he's out, we're going to jump into Daniel. And so, uh, so we get to, to do that. So however long this takes, my hope is that you can see clearly that what you might think be... That uh, would be a time of great darkness for you. That you have, you have things that you can look to. And you can see God was right there in the middle. And it's actually where he wanted you to be in the first place. Where he wants you so that you can look to him and cling to him. This is an interesting book, Daniel is. And I'll just give you a few things to, 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 uh, to, to kind of whet your appetite as we get into Daniel. But if you were in core training, you heard Corey give an overview of the book of Daniel. And uh, it's a fascinating book. 
but we're introduced to these characters. Now, if you grew up in church, you grew up knowing uh, the character of Daniel. And you uh, were probably told you want to be like Daniel. All right, you, you want to, to, uh, to, 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 uh, to, to become like him and actually uh, imitate Daniel. And that's a great thing. I'm not, I'm not going to argue otherwise because Daniel is an amazing person. Actually, in this text, I think we're to be inspired by Daniel's courage and his faith. But we're also introduced to, to three of his friends. And these are young men, very young, most likely preteens or it could be a teenager. But very, very young. We know this because in verse 21 of chapter 1, it says Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is approximately 70 years that Daniel was in Babylon. In verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So, uh, and, and he took Daniel at that time. And so he's been there 70 years. So Daniel was about 80 years old when the Jews were going back to their to their land. And the purpose of this book is a little bit different. It's in, in, included in the prophets in our Bible, in the pro, uh, prophetical section, which we will see that there are some prophecies in Daniel that are hard to understand. And I'm hoping Corey will be preaching those. But. Uh, but they are difficult. But most of the prophets are actually speaking uh, a, a difficult, a hard to hear message and actually pointing out their sin. It's a, it's a message of judgment on God's people. But Daniel's actually a message of encouragement. Encouragement to them in the midst of oppression. And the focus is not on punishment from God, but on God's control over all things. Another interesting thing about the book, and we'll get to this next week, because we, we'll hit this next week, is there are two languages, and it's a bilingual uh, text. It changes from Hebrew to Aramaic, and then back to Hebrew in, in the book of Daniel. So we're going to talk about why is that. Uh, so, And then a few messages stand out, but I like the way that Tremper Longman summarizes a central theme that I hope we get from Daniel. And it's this, that in spite of present difficulties in life, God is in control and he will have the final victory. And Corey mentioned in core training as well, it was written to encourage hopeless exiles that despite how it looks, God is king over all other kings and his kingdom is coming. So with that, I want us to look at Daniel chapter 1, in the first couple of verses. And this is, uh, this is us, if we can join in with Daniel here and actually get involved in the story. We're, we're being brought into the darkness of Babylon. I titled the sermon, Living in Babylon. I know that Babylon may not be a part of your everyday uh, vernacular. But today, it's going to be a part of our vernacular today. So, uh, but Babylon, generally speaking, biblically speaking, is meant to be bad. Babylon was, is against, if you go back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, Babel was bad. All right? so, and then all the way to the end of our, our Bible in Revelation, Babel, uh, Babylon is seen as the chief enemy uh, of God and, and their people, and, so, uh, and, and Jerusalem. So uh, Babel is bad, but in this text, we're brought into the darkness of Babylon. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim 
king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So at the end of the 7th century and beginning in the 6th century BC, we see the rise of Babylon in the ancient Near East. Jerusalem uh, was attacked, they were attacked as a part of Babylon's quest for expansion. And the city's fall occurred in basically three different periods of time uh, spanning uh, from 605 BC, which is when Daniel was taken, and then 597 and then 586, 587. So there are three attacks on Judah and Jerusalem. The story is recorded, if you want to look more, into Second Kings chapters 24 and 25, the very end of Second Kings. And it ends with a summary statement that says this, Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. And so, here we are um, in, in Daniel 1, at the first time that, they were, that there was a siege on Jerusalem. It's imp- entirely possible that Daniel's parents were taken uh, captive or even killed. So it's possible that Daniel was snagged from his family and taken uh, to Babylon, away from his family, and then Daniel's friends, who would have been young men as well, taken from their families. Because of the way that Daniel and his families are treated in Daniel 1, we might be duped into thinking that this was a soft landing for them. We may be duped into thinking that Nebuchadnezzar was a kind king. But this was as bad as the people of God could have imagined. They were ripped, through, uh, ripped from their land. Their families were separated. And the articles and the vessels that were in the temple of God were carried off as trophies of victory over Yahweh himself. You see, it was assumed that the Babylonian gods were more powerful than all the other nations, uh, the gods of the other nations that they were conquering. And they felt that Judah was no different and that Judah's God was a weak God. And by all appearances, God had been defeated. All was lost. Jerusalem besieged. Families separated. And I don't know what the future holds for our country. I don't know what the future holds for my family. You can be surprised when you go to work one day. Things change. Your life can be turned upside down. Life comes at all of us fast. There are no guarantees. And it can feel like the darkness is surrounding us. In those moments, we have to ask the question, though everything around me has changed, what has not changed? So when your world suddenly shifts, when you're thrust into the darkness of Babylon, what are we to look for? Well, first of all, we look to his word. Daniel knew this would happen because he knew God's word. The Lord is simply being true to his words spoken in the past. Generally speaking, in Leviticus chapter 26, Yahweh outlines blessings and curses associated with the covenant. So if you rebelled against against God, then God would uh, actually, uh, they'd be uh, uh, basically taken over by other nations, abandoned and placed into enemy territories. Earlier, Isaiah rebuked King Hezekiah for contemplating an alliance with the Babylonian king. That was approximately a century earlier. And Hezekiah had been placing all of his hope in an alliance with an enemy to protect Judah from what appeared to be the biggest foe, which at that time was Assyria. So he stopped looking to God to protect him. But Daniel looked to God's word. He knew God's word. 
It said, uh, Isaiah 39 says uh, in verse seven, uh, 6 and 7, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So all that's happening in Daniel 1 is happening precisely because God had said it would happen. We can also know that this was not the result of the whims of God, but rather the disobedience of his people. The downfall of Jerusalem was the fulfillment of a promise God made many years prior to Moses in Deuteronomy 28. Where he said, because you didn't serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand. They will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. If you do not carefully follow all the words of this law, which are written in this book, and do not revere this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. So we can be sure that there would have been many in Jerusalem during the siege who would have been shocked and in doubt and asking, where is God in this catastrophe? Has he forgotten about us? Yet the perspective of our author, presumably Daniel, is very different. He had no secret intel about the siege. But what he had was God's word. He knew God's word had told him that this day would come. And he knew God would do what he said he would do. And it framed everything for him. Friend, this morning, let Daniel remind you that those who have hidden God's word in their hearts can go through turbulent times with something immovable and steady to stand on. And that's God's word. Though the text doesn't explicitly direct us here, let Daniel's example encourage us to prioritize knowing his word. So we look to his word, for he's faithful to do what he said he would do. And secondly, we look to his hand. When we're brought into the darkness, we look to his hand. There's a phrase, I don't know if you caught it, but three times in chapter 1, There's a great phrase, and it's in verse 2. It says, and the Lord gave. And the Lord gave. It says it again in verse 9. And God gave. And then in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill. So, the Lord gave. So, So, what the nations see, what the world sees, versus what the heavens actually know. Nebuchadnezzar's victory was a result of God's efforts. And this is communicated with that simple phrase, and the Lord gave. It's actually a feature throughout this chapter. It's as if Daniel is wanting us to know that the Lord's sovereign hand is always at work. He knows how things may appear. He knew how it appeared in Jerusalem. He knew how it appeared to Daniel and his friends. He knows how things might appear to you right now. But know that God is in control of all things. He gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand. In a devastating and decisive act in verse 2, where Jehoiakim, was, the king of Judah, was given into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, all seemed lost. But Daniel wants us to look at the hand of God here. And interestingly enough, Daniel doesn't use the typical word for God in his 
in this book. He uses the word Yahweh one time in chapter 9. But he uses the word Adonai, meaning ruler of all things, sovereign, owner of all things. He's essentially saying in verse 2, And the sovereign owner and the ruler of all things opened his great and mighty hand and gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the small and feeble hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let Daniel remind you that your God is never asleep at the wheel. Rather, he is in full command of the entire situation. Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4 says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He has not fallen asleep on your situation. Thirdly, I want us to look at his heart. Daniel directs our attention at his heart. This is what one commentator has called humble sovereignty. You see, some of the vessels, if you caught it in verse 2, it says some of the vessels of the house of God, they brought them uh, to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of Nebuchadnezzar's God. They were carted off to Babylon and stashed in the treasure house of his God, which would have been Marduk. So the the vessels would have been a piece of equipment in, in the temple. Of gold, made of gold. These were priceless figures. Hezekiah was so proud of them, he he showed them to the king of Babylon a century uh, prior. But they carted these off and took them into the house of their god, Marduk. And this was a really bad look for God. But we have to understand that he oversaw the whole thing. Dale Ralph Davis points out that the pagans could have been singing, Praise Marduk, from whom all blessings flow. This is humble sovereignty. The capturing of these vessels, these items of gold that were in the temple, and moving them to their own temple was not just a game of capture the flag, this was divine warfare. And what this does is it shows us the heart of God, willing to suffer shame if it might awaken his people to their danger. And we see the same in Christ, do we not? Philippians 2 says that he did not consider equality with God something to be, cra- to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And here in Daniel 1, and picking up later the language about Daniel's resolve not to defile himself in verse 8. We can say that Yahweh is a God willing to defile himself if by doing so he can eventually purge his people and draw them to himself. Del Ralph Davis, once again, he says, Here then is God in his sovereign role, but a sovereignty not visible to the world. Only his people who know the secret of verse 2, the Lord gave will be able to see it. Like the early Christians who dated the deaths of their martyrs by the appropriate year, and then they added, Regnante, Jesu Christo, or in the reign of Jesus Christ. Sometimes the only glue that holds that Christian sanity intact is that they know they are currently under the reign and rule of Christ Jesus. Church family, when you have been thrust 
into the darkness. What do you look for? Take it from Daniel to look to his word who says that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Finding comfort in the darkness is contingent upon your confidence and your trust in God's word. It's described as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. So when you're thrust into the darkness, look to his word, look to his hand. who always does what's best for those who love him and are called by him. Knowing that God is in control, even in your deepest anguish, in your deepest suffering, your deepest despair, your trials, your loneliness, whatever darkness you find yourself in, or possibly even get yourself into. And then look to his heart. See the condescension that he willingly endured to bring you and me to himself. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Or Hebrews 12, 2, one of my favorites. Look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So that's the first scene. Into the darkness of Babylon. Now on to the second scene. And he could say this is a section, maybe not a scene, but it's the way the the narrative flows. So in scene two... I called it Into the School of Babylon, in verses 3 through 7. We're told in verses 3 and 4 that these boys were taken from high social standing. It says, The king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. And we're also told that they were essentially handsome, healthy, intelligent, confident, knowledgeable. They were taken from home, from their own comforts, from privilege, and were plunged into the darkness of Babylon, a very toxic place of someone who wanted to be faithful to the Lord God. And Nebuchadnezzar had a plan to fully assimilate them into Babylonian culture so they could actually eventually represent Babylon, be leaders, be servants to whatever the king wanted. So what did the school in Babylon teach? And how does our current toxic culture confront us today? I think there are some easy jumps from the education in Babylon to our culture today. First of all, the school in Babylon questions your identity. They were given new names, we're told in verse 7. They were renamed. And you may think that this is just, uh, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Just a part of the process. These boys have been given their names by their parents. Names today are an important thing. Some of you spent a long time trying to decide what to name your children. If you know me and my family background, you know that names are significant in my family. My dad's name is Ben Bob, not Benjamin Robert. And I didn't know that was funny until after I was married. And then I didn't understand that there was humor, that my dad named my oldest brother Ben Rob, not Benjamin Robert, but Ben Rob. Uh, I don't know. I think it means son of Ben Bob, Ben Rob. So. Uh, and, and then if they were going to have a girl, they were going to name the girl Tiffany Benet after my dad. This is beautiful, but we didn't have a girl. Thank God. 
Uh, on the other hand, I was actually named after a Dallas cowboy named Aaron Kyle, and uh, which is glorious. And I, I try not to point it out every time we have dinner uh, together with my brothers, but uh, but yeah, it's a pretty big deal. So. Um, there's often a sense of family pride on the line when it comes to name, but in Daniel 1, there was a sense of belonging that was on the line. One's entire identity and their entire future was on the line when it came to names. In other words, when these friends of Daniel were renamed, there was no laughter. And when the story was retold to the Jewish people, there was no laughter. Why is that? Because their names were tied to God's name and God's character and the declaration that their God was the one true God and would ultimately claim victory over all other gods. So this is not just a harmless practice. Daniel, his name meant God is my judge. It was changed to Belshazzar, which meant may Bel protect. Hananiah meant the Lord is gracious to me, and it was changed to Shadrach, which meant the command of Aku, which was the moon god. Mishael meant who is what God is, changed slightly to Meshach, which is who is what Aku is. Azariah meant God is my help, changed to Abednego, sorry which meant servant of Nebo, the God of wisdom. Dale Ralph Davis points out, he says, the use of these new names were subtle ways of saying to them, now that you're in Babylon, just settle into a new lifestyle. Forget that you belong to Jehovah God. Forget that He is judge, Daniel. Forget that He has been gracious, Hananiah. Forget that He is incomparable, Mishael and Azariah forget that he has been your helper up to this point one God is as good as another distinct costly love for the living and true God is of no consequence they would say indeed it's a positive disadvantage here forget about being different you're in Babylon that was the temptation and it eroded the distinctive testimony of God's people one of the reasons why this New Testament writers, I've said it probably uh, a lot when I've baptized people the last few times, is to remember your baptism. It's to remember your identity. It's not remembering that, that you were saved when you went under the waters. It's remembering that the old you is gone and the new you is here. Remember who you are now. Emily is getting baptized today. And she's encouraged to remember her baptism because one day a college professor will probably stand before Emily and cut, uh, throw out uh, an attempt to cause her to doubt her identity and who she is. And let the New Testament writers encourage Emily. Remember your baptism. Remember who you are. Right? That was the old you. This is the new you. So you see that Babylon, the school of Babylon, was actually causing them to, to question their identity. It also offers you comfort and protection. Nebuchadnezzar was going to be their provider here. And why could they not just resolve to praise God for the provision that Nebuchadnezzar was now offering them? They had survived. 
I would think for myself, if I went into that situation, I would just be happy to be alive. Probably be sad about my family, being stripped from my family, but I would have, I think I'd have been happy. I would have been praising God that I'm alive and now he's feeding me. Why could they not just resolve to praise God for their protection and then be thankful for Nebuchadnezzar and the provisions that he was supplying? I think it was because they knew that their comfort and their protection came from God and God alone. It also numbs you to the call to live a holy and righteous life. In verse 4, we're told that the youths without blemish By the way, that without blemish is meant to say, these are God's people. It's meant for God's people to hear that without blemish and go, these are those that have been set apart for God. But those without blemish, where is it? Oh boy, verse 4. Youth without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom. Endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. Think about the influence that these pagan Babylonian teachers would have had on these teenagers. You've possibly shuddered if you have children thinking of them going off to college. Where very liberal and pagan professors are waiting to teach. Or we might say reprogram or assimilate your child into a pagan worldview. They would have been taught different creation stories like the Enuma Elish or flood stories like the Gilgamesh epic, rivaling their own accounts of creation and the flood. The Babylonians were pagans. And they were promoting their own worldview, their, their view of man, their view of sin, their view of what redemption was like, their view of justice, all directly opposed to everything that these kids have been taught and believed while in Israel. They would have been taught the art of divination, learned how to make predictions. They would have been expected to learn how to analyze the internal organs of sheep. They would have learned how to to do astrology, looking at the stars, making predictions. The list could go on. This was an attempt to reprogram the mind, wearing away the thought patterns and their reliance on God and his word ultimately eroding the distinctive testimony of God's people, subtly whispering, settle in. Forget the old you and your old way of life. It's not a hard leap for us to say that this is the way our toxic culture confronts us today, is it? What are we allowing into our lives that is eroding our testimony Have you shifted in your way of thinking over the past 10 to 20 years? Consider the current of culture and which way it's going. I mean, 30 years ago, cohabitation before marriage was very uncommon. I don't have to tell you the statistics for divorce and the, the divorce rate these days and its increase over the past 30 years. If you want to know what... The culture around you is buying. You can look at what Taylor Swift is selling with her lyrics. Now, I'm not going hard after Taylor Swift, okay? I know we got Swifties out there. But you can look at the lyrics and see what culture, because she's probably one of the most influential people in the world, at least with the younger generation. too. You can look at the lyrics and see what culture is wanting you to buy. 
What about, Christian, your view on same-sex marriage? Has it changed over the years? Has it, has it changed at all? Has it shifted one way? And ask yourself, if it's changed, has it changed because you've taken more seriously what God's Word happens to say about it? Or has it changed because you've stopped listening to God's Word and have start, started buying what the culture is selling you about same-sex marriage? One last thing. Children, uh, I know that if you're children, you look at, me, look at me. I know that core training, that sometimes you may not quite understand the, what the teacher's saying, or you may think at times that, it's, that this, is, uh, this is what you're supposed to do. Maybe you think it's boring. Or maybe teenagers, you may think that mom and dad are a little bit out of touch by wanting to do a family devotional or wanting to discuss the sermon after Sunday mornings. Let me be, no, let Daniel be an encouragement to you to pay attention when God's word is being taught. Spend time now reading, children, read the Bible. I love that you're memorizing God's Word. Spend time writing your prayers to the Lord in a little journal. Get it into your hearts now so that some wicked people can't easily get it out when the day comes for you to be on your own. We start preparing now. And let's go to the third scene. Resolved in Babylon. In verses 8 through 16. And this seems to be the thrust of the story. And I believe we're actually to be inspired and encouraged by Daniel's faithfulness. We, we don't know the reason why Daniel resolved that he would not eat the, the king's food or the king's wine. Commentators are all over the place on this. As to why Daniel resolved, verse 8, that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So I don't think I'm going to be able to hammer it out for you uh, in this moment. My view is that he knew that he needed to draw a line in the sand so that he would remember who his ultimate provider was. It also could have been partially that this was potentially food that had been offered to idols. But he needed to draw a line in the sand so he would remember who his ultimate provider was. Part of a biblical worldview is the awareness that God's people will suffer hardship. While the faith of Daniel and his friends turned out to be great for them from a worldly perspective, it's not always the case. When you resolve to do something, to stand against culture, to trust God means to trust that He can deliver you from death, and He can deliver you, or, or He could deliver, deliver you uh, through death. And it accepts that obedience is called for no matter the cost. So when Daniel says, when he resolves that he would not defile himself with the king's food, this is a big decision. I mean, historical documents and the scriptures themselves talk about Nebuchadnezzar. He killed people that would defy his commands. So this was not a soft landing for them. And the word used for resolved is the word meaning firmly set. What does that mean? Daniel firmly set. He had it already set in his mind that he would not defile himself. 
I'll give you two, and I'm going to add a third. It's not on your sheet. Uh, two keys to living with resolve as evidenced by the life and the example of Daniel. The first one is to be a student of God's word. So if Daniel was 16, a lot of people think that he was about 16 years old in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim. And that means he was born in 622 B.C. And what happened? What great event in the history of Israel happened in 622 B.C.? Josiah, who became the king of Israel when he was eight years old. When he grew up and he was, when he turned 18, when he was 18 years old, Josiah opened the doors of the temple, the, uh, the temple of the Lord. It had been she- shut, se- sealed shut by his wicked grandfather, Manasseh. And inside the temple, they discovered God's word. And the priest discovered it. And they began to teach the people God's word. And a great revival broke out in Israel. Daniel would have grown up within this time in a community that had devoted themselves to God's word. And it's likely that his his parents had taught him God's words as he grew up. We can also see in Daniel chapter 9 that this, as, as time had gone on, Daniel was becoming an older man, of course. And in Daniel chapter 9, when he reads in Jeremiah that God's people would be able to return to their land after 70 years, he starts doing the math. And then he goes to God in prayer, asking for God to forgive his people. It's a beautiful prayer. He was a man of God's word. And it, that actually leads me to the second key to living with resolve. So as, as in chapter 9, he goes to God in prayer because he knew God's word. So the second way to be a person of resolve is to be a person of prayer. In Daniel's chapter, Daniel chapters 2, 6, and 9, Daniel routinely goes to the Lord in prayer. And if you want to know how to pray, you can, even this week, go to Daniel chapter 9 and learn from him. And I would add a third that is simply this. Become a person of strong conviction. You must prepare now for the heat to come your way. If you think that you're going to be able to muster up the strength to stand against tyrants in the future, when you don't commit yourself to God's word and to prayer right now, then you won't. And how do we do this? Colossians 3.1 It gives us a picture of what does this mean? What does it mean to be a person of strong conviction? Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. To set your mind on things above is to look at Jesus and what he's done for you. That's what the heavens right now are amazed at. They're amazed at the Son of God and what He has done for the church. What He's done for you. Set your mind on that. Relish it. Celebrate it. Rest in it. Daniel is very unique. It really only contains nine days in the book over a 70 year span. 70 years... And nine basic these events 
He was an everyday guy. As much as we want to make him out to be the superhero of the faith. There was, he was at one point a young man, like many of you in here today. And he got up every day, year after year, decade after decade, and went to work. And he made small decisions every day to not compromise. Nine events over a 70-year span. Much of that time probably was not very interesting at all. During many of those years, as far as we know, nothing special happened. We were called to live it out day by day, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, and be ready for those opportunities when God brings them. I was in the car with uh, Wheeler Brown this week, and we were uh, giving Wheeler... Um, uh, right, he had gone to the game with us, and on the way home, he was telling us a story, and he was working at Publix. And when he was trained, he was told, no tips allowed, right? No tips allowed. Absolutely no tips allowed. You've been to Publix, and you've gone out, and perhaps you've tried to tip people, and maybe they've taken your money, but they're not supposed to, all right? No tips allowed. He was also trained by, uh, by management that he's not supposed to handle alcohol. He doesn't, he's not at the right age to be able to handle alcohol or stock alcohol. But he had the opportunity recently when he went out to a car for there's an older gentleman that was trying to give him a $50 bill. And Wheeler said, I can't take tips. No tips are allowed. I can't take it. That's resolve. I was listening to that story thinking about what I would have done. Great job, Wheeler. Then a manager came up to him and asked him to take some alcohol over to, to stock in the section. He said, I, I, I'm not allowed to, to handle alcohol. It was in my train. I can't, I'm not allowed to. Legally, I'm not supposed to do that. That's resolve. You may stick out. But God will honor the faithfulness. Your faithfulness, Wheeler, he will honor that. That is resolve. The call is for us to trust the God who controls all of history. He moves kings and kingdoms at will. He moves managers in and out. And he delights in our acts of resolved obedience regardless of what it may cost us. The fourth scene, the very end, we see faithfulness in Babylon. There are things that many of you have been through, perhaps things that are going on in your life right now, and you have no idea what God is up to. You don't know why certain things have turned out the way that they have. Brothers and sisters, remain steadfast. Remain resolved to pursue faithfulness. In verse uh, verse 17, it says, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Dale Ralph Davis put it this way. He said, sometimes God may allow hardship to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. Sometimes God may allow hardship to reach us because he wants 
his mercy to reach beyond us. Do you see how this was for the good of the Babylonians even? Even in chapter 2, you'll see that Daniel actually spares the wise men in Babylon through his own wisdom. One commentator pointed out, he said, the focus throughout this chapter is not simply the faithfulness of these four young men to their God. It's actually God's faithfulness to them. Look at how that faithfulness plays out in this chapter, and then we'll close it down. Verse 9, God's faithfulness gave Daniel favor and compassion in the eyes of the chief of the eunuchs. I should note here that this was an answered prayer of Solomon. Consider God and his goodness and his grace answering Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8.50 where he prayed, God, forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you and cause their captors to show them mercy. For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of that iron smelting furnace. Look at God's faithfulness. Verse 14, we see his faithfulness. The fact that Daniel didn't lose his life is a result of God's faithfulness to Daniel. Verse 15, the results of the testing of the food with the veggies and the water shows God's faithfulness. Verse 17, it was God who made these four young men stand out, giving them minds that could comprehend on a grander scale all the literature and all the wisdom and the science that would have been required in the Babylonian courts. God did that. His faithfulness to them was on display. Verse 17, it was God who made Daniel able to discern visions and interpret dreams of all kinds. Corey mentioned the core training. I love this. These boys were faithful because God was faithful. And it brings up a crucial point that should not escape our attention in all of this. That when we reflect on our lives... The stark reality is this, that most of us don't resemble Daniel and his three friends. Instead, we closer resemble the countless unnamed individuals deported alongside Daniel. I can say whenever I was fired back in September that my mind was reeling. I didn't immediately think and go to God and his sovereign hand over my life and that he was there in the midst of that darkness that I was brought into. I didn't do that. I was reeling. But God is faithful. And he brought me through that. We have, in a sense, assimilated into foreign cultures, adopted unfamiliar names, indulged in the cultures and the customs of the ruling authority. And overall, we've become more akin to the Babylonians. In different ways, we find ourselves mixed in with the current toxic culture, often compromising our future in the process. And the deeper we dive into Daniel's story, the more evident it becomes that we are not cut from the same cloth that he was. But the good news, brothers and sisters, is not simply that God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. It is that a Savior has come, who has come to deliver faithless and compromised saints like you and me. Our salvation rests not on our ability to remain undefiled by the world, but rather on the pure and undefiled offering that Jesus has provided in our place. Christ came voluntarily into this world. With all of its pains and all of its trials and all of its darkness. And he endured far greater temptations and sufferings than Daniel did. And that we will ever. Yet he remained ever faithful. 
entirely pure until the very end, without spot or blemish, and grants the perfection of his obedience to all those who trust in him by faith. What is more, Jesus has already returned from his time in exile and now sits at the Father's right hand in heaven. And he has prepared a place for us there. And his presence there already is the guarantee that those of you who have trusted in Christ for your salvation, he will bring you there to be with him as his people. The cross is the means by which God's faithfulness redeems the unfaithful. And his resurrection and his ascension, those are the promises of our inheritance in heaven. So brothers and sisters, I think this is where the text points us. The call for you and me is to trust the God who controls all of history, even bringing you into the darkness. And he moves kings and kingdoms at will and he delights in our acts of resolved obedience, regardless of what it may cost us. I think it's time for me to close. Because I don't have a voice. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We praise your name. Your word tells us that your name and your word is exalted above everything. And so we come this morning, we look at Daniel, we're inspired by Daniel, also coming to see your grace in Daniel 1. Father, will you help us, help our children, even as we don't know what the future holds, even this year. God, help us to remain resolute, to trust in Christ, to fix our eyes on Christ, to celebrate it, to rest in the work of Jesus on our behalf. And God, I pray that even now, while some are in darkness, that they would be able to see your hand and your heart and trust your word. Would you do that by your spirit for us in your mercy? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.